Welcome to Beyond the Flight Deck podcast with United Airlines pilot and investment advisor, Alan Bewley, who will take you behind the scenes with airline pilot entrepreneurs, academics, and other professionals. And now, your host, Alan Bewley. Born and raised in Shandigarh, India, Ankit Gupta graduated from Punjab Engineering College with a degree in computer engineering. His first exposure to the airline industry was working with Air Canada in Montreal as an associate systems engineer with IBM. In 2008, Ankit immigrated to the United States with his new bride to attend Vanderbilt University's Owen Graduate School of Management. Shortly after receiving his MBA, Ankit landed at American Airlines where he spent seven years. His involvement in principal corporate development exposed him to American senior leadership in critical areas, including bankruptcy and merger-related issues. Ankit joined United Airlines in 2017 as the Managing Director of Domestic Planning. In April of 2018, he was named Vice President of Network Planning and Scheduling, where his team led historic domestic growth. Later that year, he was named one of Crane's Chicago Business 40 Under 40. Welcome Beyond the Flight Deck. Today, my guest, Ankit Gupta, the United Airlines Vice President of Network Planning and Scheduling. Ankit, welcome Beyond the Flight Deck. Thank you, Alan. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, no, thanks for taking time out of your busy day. I just want to get the promise from you. I interviewed Paul Carlson. Three weeks later, he leaves the airline. So we're not going to have any of that, are we? No, absolutely not. You're stuck with me. Good. Very good. <laughs> So you were born and raised in Chandigarh, I pronounced that properly, India? Yeah, you uh, did it well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, north of Delhi. Um, instead of asking you what it's like growing up in Chandigarh, how would you kind of compare and contrast how your kids are growing up in yeah. Chicago or a suburb of Chicago versus how you grew up in India? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a great question that actually has not been asked to me, you know, by anyone before. Uh, but what I would tell you is that it's not extremely different. It's not very different. Uh, Chandigarh, where I grew up, is actually a very modern city. Uh, it's one of the most modern cities in, in India. Uh, it has a great cultural diversity. It has a big Western influence, or in this case, U.S. influence. Uh, and in, in, in my hometown, I grew up watching you know, all sorts of uh, programming, US TV programming, and, you know, watching all sorts of movies, uh, you know, all the Arnold, uh, <laughs> what do you call it, the Terminator movies, yeah. and all the rom-coms and all that, you know, you, you, I grew up watching that. So the cult culturally, it's not extremely different from where I come from. But if you talk about how I grew up versus my kids, what I would tell you is that Basically, the kids uh, take a lot from your, from their parents, and our cultural values are still the same as I was growing up in India. They're the same as my parents. So in that sense, it's uh, very similar how they're growing up uh, versus yeah. how I grew up. Uh, so not, not a whole lot of difference over there. And are your parents still back in India? Yeah, they're still back in India. My whole family uh, is back in India. I'm the only one in the U.S. actually of the you know, 200 relatives. Sure. Uh, that I have in my family. <laughs> and how many, how many siblings do you have? I have only one. So I have okay. an elder brother uh, who lives in Delhi now. Okay. He's got two kids too. So yeah. Okay. And do both your parents work or have they worked? Yeah. In fact, my dad uh, retired as a chief controller of one of the um, public service divisions in Punjab. Uh, Chandigarh is in Punjab, the state of Punjab. Mm -hmm. uh, so he did that. He had his MBA uh, in 
you know, in India, he got his MBA. My mom worked in the labor division of uh, the Indian government. Uh, so both my parents were growing, you know, were working while I was growing up. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. So in your high school, you know, here we have high school yearbooks and then we have, <laughs> uh, you know, most likely to X, Y, Z out of high school was, was Ankit uh, most likely to do anything coming out of high school? If your friend, if I interviewed your friends right now. Yeah. I think my friends would have said most likely to be a tennis player. All right. <laughs> I grew up playing tennis for a long time. Um, okay. In fact, when I was, uh, I would say eight or nine, I started playing tennis. I played competitively all the way through. I was, I think 17 or 18. Uh, I was like missing from school a lot of the times just because I was playing tennis or playing tournaments. Uh, so that's, I think that's why my friends would say that. They will not right. be able to believe what I'm doing right now. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> totally foreign. So, okay. You go to uh, Punjab Engineering College right there in, in Shandigarh. Yeah. Um, and your first job uh, is a, a job at IBM. Yep. How was that first job and what kind of work did you do there? Yeah, so I graduated in computer science from Punjab Engineering College uh, in Chandigarh. And then right after undergrad, I had a few options. I was always very good at computer science and programming. Uh, even during my tennis days, I remember my dad bought a computer when I was in the second grade or third grade, which was like, you know, very, very few people had a computer, especially in India, very few yeah. people had a computer. And I got enamored with all things computer related at a very young age. Mm -hmm. I was uh, making very small little games that kids would do at the time. So I was in into programming well before I started computer science engineering. So during my computer science engineering days, I uh, got a chance to do a whole lot of, you know, uh, just cool projects, uh, you know, in the area that I really loved. And IBM was clearly one of those companies that, yeah. uh, you know, catered towards that segment. So I chose IBM in a city called Pune, which is near Mumbai, uh, where we fly to, by the way, with a 777-300. Yep. Uh, and in Pune, I got my first job and they shipped me off to Canada uh, as my very first project. So I was 21, uh, right out of undergrad. And they say, you have to go to Montreal, Canada to work for Air Canada as my very first project. So that's where I really got my, you know, quick start into the airlines and just seeing how smart airline folks were, even though United has much smarter folks than Air Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well said, well played, well played. All right, so interesting. Um, and, and from IBM though, you spent a little time there and, and you make a move to Cork Media House. What, what was that yeah. move about? It's, it sounds totally different. Uh, is it a big company? Because we all know IBM. Yeah. So in IBM, there are 350,000 employees worldwide. And I was an analyst, a junior analyst starting off in IBM. And I felt like that. I mean, the culture was very hierarchical. I was part of Air Canada. And as you know, airlines don't like to spend money on consultants. And in this case, IBM was a consulting firm for Air Canada. So I always felt uh, that Air Canada wanted to get much more out of their money than they really had. Uh, they were struggling at the time. The projects were good, but they were three degrees removed from the actual business. Okay. And it was ultimately a very service-oriented culture. Whereas uh, growing up, building computer games and you know, just having real uh, good computer skills, I wanted to be a part of a product development company. So that's why I jumped from IBM after one year to this uh, company called Quark, 
which is the competitor of Adobe. So that's really how you can think of Quark as it trades products like Photoshop, but these are used by Wall Street Journal or Time Magazine. So a niche product, uh, mm -hmm. but building products for those companies. And that's where I spent about a couple of years and yeah. really learned a whole lot of product development. Again, completely different from tennis or aviation, which I'm in right, right now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, now that you bring it up, I'll maybe uh, tell you about one of my experiences at Quark. I built a product at the time for Wall Street Journal, which won a, an Apple award for one of the most pro innovative product designs of the year, wow. uh, which was actually in my short career at the time was uh, one of my most proud achievements uh, at the time. Again, never thought I would come and do aviation after that, mm -hmm. uh, but something that I'd always dreamed of, of building innovative products. Yeah. It was media related in the Wall Street Journal app. Yeah. Yeah. It okay. absolutely it was like, I would say now you see, so for example, you go on a website and you play, you know, you just refresh it and it refreshes automatically. But in 2006, that didn't happen. That was like right. state of the art of that happened in 2006 or a video playing in a browser. Mm -hmm. uh, things were very simple back then, uh, even though it's like 15 years ago. Yeah. And I was leading a program where Wall Street Journal and Wall Street Journal, the journalists could really type in and write media articles from the stadium. And at right now, we don't think about it. But at that time, that was like, you know, one of the biggest deals ever. So True. that was really the product. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I know friend, I've got friends that have worked for Bain Consulting and other big consulting firms. You see a lot of them spend a few years there. Um and, and they get integrated into businesses like you did at Air Canada and come to find out, hey, I'm just a cog in a wheel here. I want to go yeah. be a part of, of something to build something. So I, I, that's something I've seen um, outside of, you know, what, what you've got, what you've done. It's, it's interesting. All right. So the best I can tell, some pretty big things happen oh six seven eight, as in you get married <laughs> and you immigrate to the United States. Yes. <laughs> that was all around the same time frame. Yeah. Uh, so I was dating my uh, wife now and girlfriend then uh, for about a few, you know, three, five years. And uh, we were at this crossroads because I had decided to pursue my MBA at the time. Right. And I got into Vanderbilt um, in Owen School of Grad, uh, you know, Owen School of Management in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And because it's such a long distance relationship, if you are in the US and you know, your partner is in India, we decided to get married. And I was 23 mm -hmm. uh, at the time when I got married, which was really, really young. I had decided that I'll get married when we are 30, but you know, things happen differently and <laughs> not how you plan them. And happily ever after. So we came here together. I did my MBA at Coven and my wife supported me all the way through. And in 2010, I graduated. Wow. Wow. Good for her. Good for you for finding her. Well done. Good for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up in Birmingham, just down the road from Nashville. I've got a lot of friends that did undergraduate at, at Vanderbilt. So, uh, and being a, a Southerner growing up, you getting married at 23 is pretty much what all my friends did. I was, I was a late bloomer myself. So, um, all right. So, so how was that? You guys, uh, now you had been to Canada. Had your wife traveled to the States or to Canada? Had she been out of India much? Not, not really. But again, I think being from Chandigarh, the, the, the hometown where we both grew up, my wife too, the cultural shock isn't as big. Uh, okay. In fact, we, you know, mingled into the culture, the American culture pretty fast. And I think being students helps a lot. 
because there's so many students around you who are either come from international different you know places or even the US students it's just easy to assimilate into the culture when you're a student yeah. then when you come to work because there's a different expectation out of you while working versus while you're a student yeah. uh, so i think those two years definitely helped us both uh, integrate into the you know the society as you can speak so uh, A, why Vandy? Did you choose them? Did they choose you? Uh, which, which way did that go? And h- how was that overall experience for you school-wise? And, and what, what in particular, that program in particular helped you kind of get where you are today or maybe some work you did in that program? Yeah. So Vandy taught me a lot. I thought that was one of the best experiences in my life, uh, both from an academic perspective as well as building connections uh, perspective. Um, being a smaller school, it had 200 students uh, and a very different educational culture versus what I had in India. Uh, growing up in my undergrad, I had to be in the school from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day. So five days a week, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., nonstop classes, you break for lunch, that's it. Very, very academic, very, very hard academic-based culture. In the U.S., it's uh, make your own uh, schedule culture, which is fantastic, which is great. Uh, But it's also a lot of responsibility on yourself to hold yourself accountable versus, you know, a structured program where they can, you know, the teachers or the school can keep you accountable. So that was the major thing that I learned was to, you know, just be responsible for my own schedule, like academics, you know, everything else associated with it. Uh, it was a struggle at first, uh, but it was also easier in a way because it wasn't as crazy a schedule. It was pretty light. I was thinking like, you know, this is just eight to 10 hours a week. This is nothing compared to 40 hours a week. Right. Um, but at the same time, I would say the in, in American education and the MBA, the, the ability to, you know, have your own voice and be able to tell your story is so much different than the culture where I come from, where it is uh, not as easy uh, to be able to tell your own story, uh, is uh, something that I learned a lot from at Vandy, just to be able to stand up in a, fr- in a room, whether that's 200 people, or 50 people, or 1,000 people, and be able to tell a story is just fantastic. I think that's the number one thing that I took away from it, other than all the great academic things. Nashville is, uh, you know, has this gravitational pull. <laughs> yeah. Whether you think about healthcare, or you think about music culture, entertainment, or just a really nice, beautiful city. And now yeah. I think it's known as a bachelorette city. All the bachelorette parties happen there. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so many things are going for Nashville. I, I, we were very lucky to be part of Nashville. We loved it, absolutely loved it. Yeah. In terms of choosing Vanderbilt versus, uh, you know, why Vanderbilt? Uh, I applied to many schools. I would say SMU and Georgetown and Vandy were my top three. And uh, I got into all three, which was uh, great. But then I got uh, a full ride at Vandy, (laughs) which definitely helped uh, push me towards Vandy. One of the things I get asked by many of our, you know, young, budding MBA, you know, aspirants uh, is, you know, what should we do? Uh, How should we think about it? And I think then always I give this advice, like as much as you can focus on getting your GMAT score higher, doing the interviews well, being really prepared and getting that scholarship because almost every school has a scholarship. Why come out with a 200 grand loan yeah. uh, at Harvard or MIT versus going to a 
Carnegie Mellon, Mellon or uh, coming to Vanderbilt, I think that yeah. is better uh, with a minimal loan. Uh, I, I give that advice all the time. So yeah. that definitely helped me out quite a bit. Yeah, I, I live within a mile of University of Virginia, and, and all my neighbors have something to do with the school, lots of PhDs. And one of the things they tell me the most to, to kind of tell, say, my friends' kids, the undergrad piece, especially if you're seeking a PhD, the undergrad piece is not necessarily, you don't have to go to a high dollar private college to get into a good PhD program somewhere. You don't have to go spend that several hundred thousand dollars. You might be able to go to a, a state school, a University of Virginia, which is a great school or a Vanderbilt or whatever. And then, yeah, and then focus on maybe the, the more elite school for the PhD piece or even the, <laughs> yeah. the MBA piece. So, yeah. Um, while you were there, you did an internship. Anything uh, at a company called Asturion, anything there that was uh, kind of gave you a little piece uh, in your toolkit to take with you onto Americans? I think the people at Asturion, it was a company, it was a, it's an insurance provider for mobile, you know, mobile phones and now electronics. Uh, now it's into, you know, big time into electronics with a program at Best Buy. So it was known for that and uh, really big footprint in Nashville. Uh, they came hiring in 2009. Uh, so maybe it was less about a studio and it was more about the time. 2009 was a very, very difficult time to right. get hired. Uh, we had the biggest economic meltdown ever. <laughs> and coming from India, having an international background, it was even harder because there were very few companies hiring international students. Right. Uh, so be able to get into that program itself or just the internship itself was a blessing. And uh, I, I remember that more than my internship itself. It was just incredibly hard to find a job. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, but sometimes you also find out that, you know, you don't want to work for a place and not because it was, you know, it was a bad place to work. It was just it was insurance for mobile phones, uh, which is not right. something that you can I get passionate about. Yeah, right. No, I, I, I get that. So we, I don't sell any insurance products at all. Uh, I, I farm that out to providers. We're a fee-only advisor here and uh, to, to United Pilots. So yeah. Paul Carlson got connected to Northwest and then United both through contacts within his uh, master's program at MIT. Um, you mentioned at Vanderbilt, you made some great contacts, networking opportunities there. Uh, any of those contacts help you with American? How did your leap to American happen? Yeah, actually, that is exactly how that happened. Uh, in 2009, again, during fall, we, you all start looking for jobs mm -hmm. as you enter your second year of uh, graduate program. And one of my friends who was a year senior to me had done his internship at American and was going there full-time uh, for his full-time, he got his full-time offer. And he's the one who connected me with actually a pilot at American. Uh, so the first person I ever spoke to an airline after MBA was a pilot. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was just fantastic to hear the passion uh, of the pilots for their airline. And rightly so, whether it's American or United or you know, Delta. And just uh, the passion was so infectious uh, that you know, I really gravitated towards it. And then their program was pretty incredible. Uh, it was a leadership development program. So they put you into different commercial functions or finance functions, and they rotate you around to give you diverse experiences. So it really pulled me towards American, plus the flight benefits. I mean, you know, who can, <laughs> who can say no to that? 
Hey, look, I'm the son of a United pilot. I grew up with with uh, travel passes. They, they were more valuable back in the 70s and 80s. I'll tell you that much because there were seats on the airplane, but uh, yeah. on the airplanes. Uh, again, another sorry to bring it up. Again, another connection yeah. with, with with Paul is he went to Northwest and started in a cargo capacity, and you start in a an analyst capacity at American. Yeah. So you, you mentioned they rotated you around uh, in departments there in this leadership program. Uh, in that time frame, what kind of stood out to you? did the network planning piece grab you or did, did you grab it? You know, did that yeah. tend to be something you were good at or something you were passionate about? How, how did that transition play? Um, not, not really actually. So how it really happened was I was part of the cargo revenue management uh, department. And the reason I chose that department was my friend who had just graduated was part of the cargo revenue management program. Uh, so I chose that, even though most of the folks would choose the passenger side of the business. And I was given that I was given three options and I chose cargo and retrospect, if I knew better, I wouldn't have, <laughs> not that cargo is any bad place to go. It's right. just, that's not the first place you think about starting in and especially having no background in cargo, but I started there and I, I found out how much, uh, how much ability to make a, make a difference there was in a smaller part of the business, which was the cargo part of the business at American. Uh, sometimes when you come to departments like network planning and you're just starting out, it is harder to make that bigger difference uh, because yeah. you know there's lots of expertise, there's lots of layers you have to go through to make that decision. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a high risk, high reward kind of uh, issue. But in cargo, uh, you know, some of the high risk, high reward programs are lower in value compared to the passenger side. And I really, really enjoyed that autonomy, uh, that ability to make a decision at that level, at a lower level. I started as an analyst at American. And the, uh, I would say access to senior leadership as well, uh, which was very, very good at American, especially in the cargo department at the time. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was uh, one of the highlights uh, for me in cargo. Yeah, well, I mean, just look at, I think we're, we're up to 2 billion in revenue over the last 18 months in cargo at United. I mean, it's incredible. It is again, that, incredible. yeah, that, how do we call that, it? that secondary uh, portion of our revenue management now leaps. Absolutely. Right? Hats off to Yon Krems and team. Yon yeah. Krems is our president of cargo is just a phenomenal job. Yeah. Uh, so while you're on that subject, uh, I did. There is a discussion going around on the United Pilot Forum. So we understand there's triple seven three hundreds that are now dedicated cargo and maybe more five or ten airplanes or something. Is that what's going on? Did we read? Uh, I would say that those those decisions, unfortunately, are short lived decisions anyway. So even if they are they are happening right now. You're okay. Uh, but those will be for a shorter term, especially as Europe just opened up, UK yeah. just opened up. Australia and New Zealand making, you know, they're making announcements uh, about their different, you know, opening up processes. Right. I would say the cargo, cargo will still continue to be a driving force, but now passenger, there will be more about the passenger service than cargo. Yeah. Uh, but do you expect to see more white bodies in service as yeah. time progresses? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got 52 of them that we're waiting to, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, when you come out of cargo, you do some airline profitability analysis, some network performance work, but then you roll into this principle of corporate development and you work with the merger. Um, yep. Talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, one of the most uh, interesting experiences anybody can get, but obviously I would not wish that upon anybody at United. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
with that ca caveat, I started in 2010 with American and in 2011 filed for bankruptcy. And I moved into this department called corporate planning, which had a lot of the centralized finance functions. So it had all the fleet planning exercises, all the fleet budgets that we had to make. American had just ordered the largest aircraft order ever, which was 450 aircraft. Mm -hmm. uh, we did all sorts of airline profitability analysis. So which routes made money, which routes didn't make money. All sorts of uh, labor relation work was part of that department too. So I was really lucky to be able to get into that department. Uh, a lot of the leaders, including Tom Horton or Doug Parker, or uh, American, uh, I would say the American leadership, Vasu now, all those people came down from that department. So it had this prestige about it, that if you had gone through that department, you learned a lot, right. and ultimately you became leaders of the company. So I spent four years over there, including corporate development, uh, like you mentioned. And one of the best experiences of my life, that's where I met Scott Kirby and Andrew yeah. Nacella. Even though we were on the op opposing sides, uh, we met as... Uh, what do you say, frenemies and became friends. Yeah. <laughs> and we thought, uh, me and my buddy Patrick, uh, who's the who leads our international division, Quail. Uh, we both thought that as soon as these guys take over, uh, we will be fired. <laughs> <And> <laughs> luckily, that did not happen uh, because we were all trying to you know keep American as a siloed operator and not merge with US Airways yeah. at the time. And then we went through the whole process of not now, later, to, oh, absolutely, we should do it. And between that time, we had several, I wouldn't say confrontational, but debate, debateful, full of debate calls with Kirby, yeah. uh, Mr. Kirby and Andrew. So that was a fascinating time, just getting a glimpse of all the different senior leadership at US Airways, American, being able to talk to our unsecured you know, credit, uh, creditors committees, the bondholders, the shareholders, everybody had their own piece. The bondholders wanted as much money back as possible. Shareholders wanted their equity to remain as valuable as possible. The debt holders, uh, they wanted to, some, some of them wanted to break up American Airlines and just right. sell the pieces for money. And then you had the unsecured creditors committee, which is the pilots union, the flight attendants, all the labor groups. Uh, which don't have any debt or any belonging to the airline, but they are a critical part of the airline. So to be able to work with different divisions of stakeholders uh, right. in a bankruptcy, as well as building a plan to get out of bankruptcy, to, pro to provide it to the judge and say, this is our plan and this is the best plan uh, that American can have for the future. It just gave me personally a glimpse into so many different aspects of American that I just don't think you can get otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I was really, really lucky to be part of that. Growing up as well, I wasn't the leader at the time. I just got into leadership positions right after that, but just a phenomenal experience overall. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, here we are today with Continental employees have gone through two bankruptcies. United, we've gone, I'm Legacy United, we've gone through the largest airline and second largest corporate bankruptcy in US history. Yeah. Um, all those players, you know, we, we heard all the same things. When you were at American during that time, was the consensus in senior leadership and the people you worked with, hey, let's let's bring this thing out of bankruptcy, lean, mean to come out, strike fighting. I mean, is that was that the mentality there at American? Yeah, totally, totally. Because if you look across the board, all the airline bankruptcies have benefited that particular airline at that particular time. Uh, because they are able to shed their costs like nobody else. 
So American was the last to enter bankruptcy. So they came out and they had the lowest cost structure of any airline. Uh, they were able to renegotiate all their contracts with all their suppliers. Mm-hmm. Just take as an example, HP. I mean, a simple example, the laptops that we have right now, I mean, it could almost be worth, let's say, a $100 million purchase a year uh, contract with HP. And if you can get that down to 60, 50, yeah. 40, that's like half your costs are gone, but you still maintain your you know, infrastructure. Right. Similarly, you just go through every single aspect of your cost and you're able to reduce it down. And that's what you benefit from for the next three to five years. And then it catches up because the costs escalate back right. to you know, you're all at equilibrium, which we all are at right, right now. In sure. 2019, nobody has a cost advantage over the other. They yeah. all are the same. Yeah. Uh, but for a few years, you do. And like you said, you come out lean, mean, and uh, you try to strike as hard as possible by growing more than you can because you have a lower cost structure. You can make more money. Yeah. Uh, so it's actually a really, you know, really good time at American. Yeah, I will say, I think I'm not going to speak for all 100,000 of us going into bankruptcy with United, but, you know, the board brought on Glenn Tilton. And from our perspective, it looked pretty much like he was brought into you know, cut the airline down to the bare minimum and put us up for sale or break us apart. You know, depending on what player you were talking to, what creditor you were talking to, like you mentioned before, some of your, uh, some of the people and organizations holding your debt may wanted to break you up. We had a lot of that going on. Um, You know, we had the lost decade in the industry and United was certainly no different. Beyond the Flight Deck is brought to you by United Wealth Management, a leader in PRAP management and financial planning by United Pilots for United Pilots since 2005. We offer what the PRAP cannot, personal, professional financial care, a true financial co-pilot. To learn more, we invite you to be in touch. So speaking of United, uh, you cross over there at time with at American with Scott Kirby, uh, with Andrew Nocella, uh, Patrick Quayle. I'm, I'm assuming you were talking about earlier. Yep. He was he was with you at American before the merger. Yeah, he was. So I, when I was, he was there, I think, from 2008 and I started in 2010. Our okay. paths really crossed in corporate uh, corporate planning, the department I was mentioning, where you learn all those different things. And he was already part of that when I moved to corporate planning. So we both kind of grew up in that space. So today, all four of you are here. <laughs> um, did uh, I'm not looking at Scott's information right now. Did, did he come to United before you? Did he come yeah. with Andrew? Did he bring you at the same time or just give you a call <laughs> after he got here? Uh, I would say Scott came over uh, and then uh, the procession followed. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. You start out as managing director of domestic planning, move to domestic network. Today, you're vice president network planning and scheduling. What's the difference between those three job titles? Uh, when you are just, not just, when you are the managing director of capacity planning or domestic planning, you're really just managing the capacity. So you're determining, okay, I can fly Chicago to LaGuardia 15 times a day or Chicago to, you know, pick a city, Allentown, three times a day on a certain aircraft. And you don't worry about any of the other aspects. You're trying to design the system to the best of your ability and let the schedulers do their job, let the operation do their job. You have, you're part of network planning, but you're a smaller subset uh, at that point. And you can essentially say, you know, my job is done and here it is. Uh, Just go build it to the best of your ability. 
as the VP of network planning, I would say you are responsible for a much bigger aspect. It's not just about the plan itself. It's also execution of that entire plan, which includes all the scheduling functions of the, all the operational functions that we touch, all the fleet planning functions that we touch. I also have the charters responsibilities, so all the craft activation that we did, um, all the interactions with the regional partners, all the interactions with the finance department, so in this particular case, my responsibility, I would say, grew tenfold uh, because as the managing director, while it's a really large job, and it's a very cool job. It came with a lot of cool factor, but not a lot of the responsibility that comes because right. you can just give a plan and say, build it. Right. Uh, but as the network VP, I'm responsible to make sure that that plan is executable too. So And, and so the yeah. current managing director reports to you, I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was a little too big of a job, so I had to break it apart in two. Uh, because it was managing director responsible for all the hubs. So I had to break it up into managing director of West and the director of East uh, just to okay. be able to make it more manageable. Uh, and you took this title over in 2018? In 2018. That's okay. Um, which is the same year you were named top 40 <laughs> under 40 from Crane Chicago business. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, pretty interesting. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about the data points that, and maybe even go back to when you were managing director, the input, the information you're analyzing comes from, I assume, multiple sources, whether it be uh, outside, you know, investment bank projections, our own uh, Ford bookings, uh, working with Paul Carlson's department, was Paul's department, I got to stop saying that, uh, to see if we can staff airplanes from pilot flight centers. Talk about some of the data points that you work on on a daily basis or, or people in your team to help make these decisions. And yep. let's kind of talk a little pre-COVID because we'll talk a little bit about COVID in a minute. Yeah. So in terms of planning, uh, there's a whole lot of inputs that go into this recipe of like building a network plan. Uh, obviously, our, and in no particular order because it's very iterative process as well as yeah. it's not like this first comes first and then this comes and then this comes. Right. It's, you take a whole lot of inputs together to build this network plan. And I would say first and foremost, I think fleet planning, I would say if anything came first would be fleet plans uh, because you need to know how many aircraft do you have before you start planning. Uh, so we try to, let's say we have 600 you know, narrow bodies. We have 580, let's call it 580 narrow bodies and 200 wide bodies, and then about 600 regional aircraft. So you take that all together and you say, this is the aircraft plan that I have. Based on that, I can build my hubs to this size. Ultimately, I have 13 or 1400 aircraft and seven hubs. What is the best aircraft to use on in which hub on which route? Now, if it was up to planning, I would have a different aircraft on different time of day and different you know, day yeah. of week. Like on Tuesday, I would have a different aircraft than Saturday than Thursday. But then you start layering in the constraints. Uh, the constraints are on the pilot side, like you said, the former Paul Carlson job, uh, or under Brian Quigley, we have to figure out what's the right staffing levels for each fleet type. Sometimes it happens that the Airbus has less hours available than the 737 because of the training cycle that happened or the holidays, or the vacation cycle that happened. So you have to work within that constraint and you're told, okay, your Airbus aircraft, while you, know, you had 10,000 block hours, you can only fly nine. So you have to cut that down. Then you have the regional constraints uh, and you are very well aware of all the regional constraints that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, so we would do that. SkyWest, for example, only flies on the West Coast. Commute air, 
for you know for so far was only flying on the east coast so you know you take that consideration set one of the biggest ones that you might uh, somebody might not think of is the maintenance criteria that we have mm-hmm. so then you go into this big layer of constraint which says that in you know let's take an example of dallas in dallas you have three lines of maintenance that means you need to have three aircraft overnight every day so no matter you know where your schedule is you have to put those aircraft in there similarly if you i don't know if you ever noticed this but there's a chicago duluth 319 that we had in overnight so we if you see all day long there was a 50 seater and the and nighttime flight which was the worst time channel at 9 pm we would send a 319 out there or 320 because we had airbus maintenance over there okay so you know a lot of folks would ask me why are you flying at the worst time the bigger aircraft and that's the constraint that we put on ourselves um so those are the constraints on the maintenance planning side then you have i would say slot constraints in dca or laguardia right. or newark then you have to worry about that then there's the gate constraints from a cre perspective so you layer in okay we only have uh, 50 mainline mainline gates in houston at any given time of the 100 gates and there's 20 latin flights going out in the morning yeah. so at 9 am the best you can do is 30 mainline jets in the domestic except latin uh because houston is a latin gateway so you have 20 30 that is 50 mainline gates and the rest are regional gates and then you have to you know again somebody in houston might say let's say a city which should be kansas city might should be on mainline why you not flying the 9 am departure on mainline and the answer that nobody wants to give is that there's 50 gates and it's such a detailed answer that you have to yeah. provide that it fell off those top 30 domestic destinations so i would say and then the biggest part that i should have mentioned is our domestic strategy mm-hmm. uh what is our strategy in chicago what is our competitive profile look like what did southwest do what did jetblue do what did american do and you know that is something that obviously is top of mind and we look at all the time to make sure we have the most competitive schedules in the competitive markets for our customers yeah um so that all of that goes into this recipe of making the best schedule uh within all those constraints put it together uh for our customers and our employee uh, of course um how much do you look at or is this not your department uh cost per seat mile of each individual airplane is that a primary driver as well or is that something that finance looks at or marketing it absolutely is so uh, actually that is one of the biggest drivers again so a 757 versus a 767 or versus a 737900 so boston san fran is a great example of that so when you are determining you should you put a live flat seat in boston san fran or boston la and you see five other airlines are flying that route with a live flat seat in the first class cabin mm-hmm. and you have a 757 which you could either fly from newark to a an atlantic destination or you could put on boston san fran because of competitive reasons or you could put a 767 instead because that can also carry cargo versus mm-hmm. a 739 which will be the cheapest of all right. but won't have that life flat product right so then you kind of have to do an analysis beforehand what is the best outcome for your overall network for your customers because sometimes it might not be profitable right away right but in the longer term it's profitable for example a 757 on a boston la it's not the best you know profitability 
product out there, but from a customer perspective, it makes total sense. Uh, I was in uh, LA in the late 90s as a 67 first officer, and we had the 67200. Uh, which I know Continental had as well. But all we did was LA JFK or San Fran JFK, three class plus economy plus when it came along. Uh, very nice service. Um, and it was interesting because we don't feed JFK, right? We, yeah. feed, we, we it, was, it really was a spoke city of yeah. LA and San Francisco. So in 2018, we announced we're coming back into JFK. And that's still the same, right? I mean, yeah. JFK is a spoke, spoke city of LA and Absolutely. San Francisco. Yeah. yeah, it is a spoke city, but I would say it has this unique characteristic that many of our customers today have to go to Newark to take right. a flight. Right. And in the future, they don't have to. So while it is a spoke, it is still the customer base is from our hubs uh, and JFK. But you're right, there's no connecting traffic. It's all New York-based traffic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was interesting because we used to fly JFK to London, Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires, uh, Hong Kong. It always baffled me because we didn't feed it, you know, yeah. it was Miami as well. We fed Miami with Chicago and LA occasionally. And yep. I think even Newark some, but that was it. And we flew international out of there. So. Yeah. I think that is definitely one of the, I would say more, I would say that was one of the bad decisions. I think previous management took. It's easy for me to say that. And I hate to say that, but yeah. I'm sure there were reasons behind it. But if I had to take one of the decisions back, that definitely would be one. It's very hard uh, to go back into a city once you've already lost it. Sure. Oh, yeah. You yeah. elbow your way in there uh, amongst all the competition. So a good example of my next question is the 67 fleet. Uh, before the merger, we had United 75s and 67300s, uh, uh, Pratt & Whitney powered airplanes. And then Continental had the 75 Rolls-Royce and the 67400. As two independent airlines... We had a little, we didn't have any flexibility really because we weren't flying our Pratt and Whitney airplanes across the pond or seven fives across the Atlantic where Continental was. From, from your perspective, you got here after the merger. Then we have all four airplanes, not to mention the seven five 300. Yep. How big a tool bag is that for you being able to take all of those different airplanes? Uh, and how much more complex does it make the decision making process? Yeah. It is an incredible tool from a planning perspective, and it is one of the most hard, it is one of the hardest things from an operational perspective. And I'll elaborate a little bit why. From a planning perspective, there's absolutely no replacement for a 7.6. Uh, you know, the range, the cost economics, and the seat configuration or the, the length of the aircraft, there's no replacement. Uh, yeah. Boeing tried their hands at the NMA and failed. Uh, Airbus has converted the 321s to the 321XLR, but it's a smaller tube than a 767. Right. And I think that'll be challenging going forward because you want bigger tubes. So nobody has been able to solve that, um, you know, that unique uh, challenge. On the Boeing side, if you look at American, they're replacing all their 76s with 78s. And the 788, while it is the same length as the 767-300, a little bigger than that, but similar yeah, size, right. similar profile, its cost economics are incredibly high because it's built for an 8,000 mile mission. Right. And when you take a large aircraft and fly it to shorter missions than it is designed for, it costs you a whole lot of more money than it right. on a longer mission. Just take, for example, a 777-300. If I flew it Chicago to Newark all day long, that would burn so much cash uh, that we would never actually do that. Yeah. 
So similarly, we would be actually by not retiring the 7.6 fleet and the 7.5 fleet are in this unique uh, scenario where we can actually service markets that our competitors won't be able to in the future. Similarly, we can provide that live flat seed offering on the transcon missions um, on the off-peak channels when you can't fly a 787-10 or a 777-2 live flat on the transcons mm-hmm. or Hawaii uh, that we can do versus our competition who will have to do that but with the 787-8, which is just going to destroy the economics of that route. So we are incredibly pleased to have that in our toolkit from a planning perspective. From an operational perspective, I can tell you it is one of the hardest challenges to solve. And the way we solve it is by having higher spare ratios. So because these aircraft are older, some of the tooling is not even available from the OEM. So we have to make our own tooling, if wow. you can believe it. Yeah. So you don't want to be able to do that tooling in all seven hubs. For a 737 fleet, everything is available. I mean, if it breaks right. down in a hub or a spoke, it's easier to fix because it's available everywhere. A 7.5 breaks down in a spoke, it's next to impossible to get it out of them yeah. in like one, two, or three days. Yeah. So that means you need to have extra aircraft that spares. Similarly, what you uh, on top of that, it creates a different training cycle for our pilots. Mm-hmm. So you have to go between a 7.3, then a 7.5, a 7.576, and a 777.78. Right. Uh, so there's more steps on the ladder. That means there's more unproductive time, which ultimately means more cost. Cost, yeah. Similarly, if you think about the, you know, the, uh, the gating that we have to provide, it's a longer tube. So you have mm-hmm. different gate profiles, you have different jet bridges, you have different galley cards. The amount of complexity just keeps increasing uh, every time you step on the aircraft. And when anything breaks, you don't have a replacement. Let's say a 7.5 breaks, you provide a 7.3.9, you don't have the live flat seats. So it's a customer unfriendly proposition to you. Right. So from an operational perspective, it is one of the hardest things to do. And luckily we have a very strong operational team which is able to manage all of that. And that's why we were able to keep it versus American, to be very honest. It's all because of the great operations team that we have uh, that allowed us to keep that aircraft in our fleet for a long, much longer time period and you will see many new markets come out of uh, us uh, out of United because of that versus yeah, Canada. very Just good. Kidding. As long as the revenue overcomes the extra cost of of doing business, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there an in-house or outsourced software that is used to manage this big picture? <laughs> yeah, both actually. Um, so there's plenty of industry standard softwares that are out there. But being at American and being at United, the experience, from my experience, I can tell you that there's not a single software that can serve the need of a legacy airline, whether it's Delta American or United. And the reason is that when Sabre, which is the, you know, the leading software provider, creates these software products, they build it for 100 airlines across mm-hmm. the world. They don't build it for the three airlines that have this complexity. If you look at BA, they're really hubbed in Heathrow. One hub airline, easier to schedule. Uh, You look at uh, other, you know, you can look at all these foreign carriers who use these software products. They have one to two hubs, Mm -hmm. less aircraft fleet types uh, with 60 to 80 aircraft each. And those are big airlines in their countries, but United with 1300 aircraft, you know, 50 different subfleets, different seating configurations, different, uh, you know, maintenance criteria, all the things you have to build into the software. So what we do is we have lots of uh, software that is built in, you know, in-house. 
We have lots of software that comes from Saber and other places, and then we customize it to our own needs. Uh, so I would say there's more software that we use than you can think of uh, for almost everything that we do. I mean, even as small as flight numbering system that you have is super complicated with the code share partners and interline stuff that you have to go through that a human cannot do the flight numbering today. It's, it's yeah. that complex. No way. Hey, look, I run a very small, uh, myself, another advisor, and I have one full-time employee. We probably use four or five different pieces of software just for my little one-man <laughs> shop. Out of, I can't imagine trying to manage all this stuff behind me. <laughs> yeah. my, my dad was the United pilot for 33 years. And when I got hired in 96, one of the first things he said to me was, look, I don't have a clue how an airline makes, a, makes money. He says, once you, all you have to do is walk through world headquarters and, and try and figure out, you know, how this happens. Uh, yeah. it, it's the external factors that we, that things out of our control, weather, maintenance, uh, regulatory, Absolutely. a couple more minutes. Um, Dulles, ever <laughs> since the merger, we've always been, and I'm Dulles based. So okay. I'm going to ask this. We've Absolutely. always been on pins and needles, right? We have Newark. However, we're aware that Newark has a lot of limitations, uh, uh, airspace, gates, ground space. Um, I, I read from time to time, Denver is one of our most profitable hubs. But talk to me a few minutes about Dulles. Uh, are, are we, uh, should we be worried? <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all, quite the contrary. Uh, Dulles is, look, if not the most profitable uh, airport for us or hub for us, it is very close to Denver. And look, that was pre-pandemic. So during pandemic and what yeah. happens after could be different. But Dulles has this unique, uh, you know, uh, there's lots of things unique about Dulles. One is our international portfolio, which, uh, you know, through the great integrated domestic network, we're able to make really, really strong compared to our competition. Yeah. When you have 100 flights in a bank at 5 p.m., you can't really compare to that. That's like Atlanta or Dallas uh, in any bank. The problem is Atlanta has 10 of those in a day. So you have 1,000 flights over Atlanta and we have three of those. Yeah. So the question is, how do we go from three to more? And uh, I would say that's one of our big plans for Dallas is to actually increase the number of time channels. But before we go there, I would say the first thing to do is to have 100 departures at 8 a.m., 100 departures at 12, 100 departures at 5 p.m., and maybe 60 to 70 departures at 10 p.m. And once we do that with the biggest gauge possible, even today, even in 2019, we were flying 70 seaters to places like Nashville. I mean, mm -hmm. I come from Mandy, so I use that example a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that is not acceptable. Until we get to a 739 to Nashville three times a day, uh, I, I would like to get there before I would like to add a time channel, which is also the next natural progression of the hub. So expect to go to 360, 370 flights, at some point, I can't give you the timeline. Today sure, is pretty sure. fuzzy, right. uh, with the largest gauge possible, and then right after, you could expect us to add a ten thirty time channel. You know, more time channels during the middle parts of the day, uh, which uh, Dulles is craving really. So, yeah. I mean, it might not happen in that order. It might happen in a different order. But our goal is to maximize utility for our passengers in Dulles, and being one of our stronger hubs, uh, you should expect us to do that uh, over yeah. the next couple of years. No, I mean, we own it, right? I mean, we are we are the carrier there. Uh, I guess MWA has always been our challenge because our cost per ticket, our departure costs are so expensive there. We are definitely a high cost airline compared to other airlines out there. Uh, in DC, the cost per employment is uh, quite high, about mm. five to six times higher than a Dallas or a Charlotte. 
So let's say a $100 ticket between Providence to Miami over Charlotte, the cost per employment is two or $3 versus out of Dallas, it could be as high as $15. So we lose out on the same $100 ticket because you have to be, you know, you're competitive in those markets. We make 85 right off the bat or we make money off of the $85. Right. In Charlotte, it's about $97 that they have right. to live. You know, then all the costs come. So that is definitely a disadvantage. Uh, but look, we have a great local customer base in Dallas, which makes up for that. There's a great Transcon and a transatlantic portfolio that makes up for that. So we are uh, high cost uh, and we are proud to be high cost <laughs> in this yeah. particular case. Well, as long as we can charge the... Uh... The appropriate, yeah, yeah. It's always about the product. Um, we did hear a, lot of, a fair amount of, from you last year. I won't rehash, you know, a lot of the decisions that were being made to help build things back up. I did have uh, Scott Kirby on the airplane, like I told you a few weeks ago. Uh, I asked him about kind of short term, uh, and he was very um, optimistic about the holiday travel, despite the fact that that American went on a fare dump. It was ironic we were coming out of Dallas when I had him on the airplane. Um, uh, you share the same optimism about this holiday season and uh, we see Delta variant around the world, especially here in the U S is starting to finally taper off um, with our corporate customers, with our forward looking bookings. Are we seeing any, anything yet tick back up as a, as a result you think of the Delta variant coming back down? What, what's your yeah. six to 12 month outlook right now? What I would say is with the Delta variant, we've seen the bookings taper off dramatically uh, and when I say dramatically, we were almost back to the 2019 levels in terms of bookings, almost. And then the bookings fell by 30, 40%. And like you said, there was, a, you know, the fair environment wasn't great. That impacted our revenue by another 20 points because the bookings were lower and the fares were lower by 20 points. So the overall revenue was hurt by 60% almost in many cases or many days. And now we are getting back on the trajectory where we are getting back to where we were pre-Delta variant. So we're coming back to, I would say about down 20 to down 30% and the okay. yields are improving. So the fares are improving. So I would say we are getting back. It's too soon to say we are back, uh, yeah. but we are on the right trajectory. And every day I look at the bookings. The first thing I do is look at the bookings from yesterday. And every day is like, I pray before I look at them and they're, <laughs> right, right. And they're looking better and better every day. Okay. Uh, so that's one on the customer, on the customer side, the businesses, I think will really restart in March of next year, the spring okay. time frame. So those business bookings are unfortunately not as great. Plus the business bookings happen close in. Yeah. So it's very hard to tell you how the business bookings will shape up for the month of November or December, because they really happened within the last two weeks. Uh, but right now our corporate customers are telling us that they're starting to travel again. Even though the offices are closed, they're starting to get their lunches and dinners on books. Even if the offices, they don't have to go into their offices, the consultants, yeah. the lawyers, uh, and others are starting to do that. So we are seeing that in the data too. So very encouraging. I share the optimism around the holidays. Those holiday bookings are outperforming everything else right now. Uh, and I think the real recovery, absent any other variant, uh, would really tick, tick up in the Feb second half or in the spring time frame, I think we should be back to 100%, if not like way, way beyond that. Well, I mean, that coincides with what's going on in our training center right now. We're, we're hiring. 
like crazy. A lot yeah. of us are questioning it because we know we have 52 triple sevens not flying. We don't know when they're not coming back. So there's there's some of that yeah. concern out there that it's we're no coincidence. Look, we plan to it. So we're planning to it. There's no coincidence to that. Yeah. I think we think the summer next year would be really, really good. Last question. Nothing to do with airplanes and aviation and and, and uh, finance or network planning. Uh, you have a holiday coming up in early November called Diwali. Is that correct? Diwali, that's correct. Tell us what that is. <laughs> Diwali. Diwali is the festival of lights in India. It's really a celebration of, if I was to get technical, you know, the good winning over the evil. Uh, and it's really the start of the new year in India too. So it's uh, a few different things rolled into one. And ultimately, I would say it's just like Thanksgiving or Christmas in 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 the U.S., which is, by the way, my favorite time of the year. It's like a, an, an excuse to get together with family, think about nothing else, uh, have a great time, uh, you know, create some great memories, uh, you know, have good food, go on a vacation, spend time with the kids, spend time with the parents. Sure. Uh, just, you know, de-stress and reconnect with, you know, the loved ones. Uh, I think that's, it's, it's no different than that. And will you travel to India? Will your, if any of your family come here, will you connect? <laughs> Generally, we are unable to do that because that Diwali doesn't mean a holiday in the U.S. Right. <laughs> so the timing doesn't really work out. Uh, but we are able to connect via, you know, the Teams or Zoom or phone calls. So we do all of that and we celebrate at home. We have a, you know, a good enough friend circle who celebrates Diwali. So we do it at home. Sure. All right. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Well, look, Ankit, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you coming and uh, sitting down with me today. No, thank you, uh, Alan. It's it's my pleasure to be here. And again, I, it'd be remiss. I would be remiss to not thank our pilot community who I absolutely adore. Uh, And like I said before, I think the passion that the pilots have for the airline. I wish every single individual who worked for the airline shared the same passion uh, because it's so infectious. Uh, everybody wants to succeed. And when you see the type A personalities and the whole pilot workforce want to do that, that just you know gives you an added kick. Uh, so I'm right with you. I'm right uh, with you, not behind you or in front of you. I'm just right with you. Sure. And turning this airline around and being the best airline ever. So thank hey. you for having me. Yeah, and we uh, we look forward to what what's next to come from your department. We appreciate all the hard work you guys do. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. All right, Ankit, thanks. All right. Thank you, Alan.